0: If you're new around here, you probably don't recognize me because I have been gone for the last few months celebrating the birth of our fourth daughter. And I wanted to take a moment by picture and introduce you to Merritt James. Um, This is my little Merritt. Yeah. Yeah. Her name means reward from God, and uh, she is everything and every of that. Um, Today, she actually made a live appearance here in the front row as well. Let's just hope she sleeps through my voice. She tends to like that. So, uh, but you guys can't sleep through my voice, okay? All right. Um, I've been a pastor here for almost eight years coming up, and uh, I love you guys deeply, fully. Um, I'm so thankful for Brad, so thankful for our executive pastor, Missy, our church council, that uh, gave my family some time, just some time to catch our breath, time to figure out how the heck we're going to raise four daughters and what that rhythm of life is going to look like. Um, uh, I'm not going to get to raise a son, but I do need some of you out there to raise at least four really amazing sons, okay? (laughs) Sounds good. Sounds like a plan. Well, we're going to continue our series out of 1 Corinthians. It's titled The People in a Place, and we're going to be in chapter 11 today, um, starting in verse 17. Now, <laughs> I had to warm you up with uh, cute pictures of my daughter and my family because uh, today's passage is not necessarily going to be an easy one. Um, in fact, it's like, hey, Alex, welcome back. We're glad you had some time off. Uh, now let's let's jump right into a difficult topic. Why not? Right? I was joking with my team this week as I began to come back to work. I feel. Uh, strangely kind of like I'm going back through puberty, only work puberty. Um, And here's what I mean. Between like the sixth and seventh grade, I grew seven inches and I could not put one foot in front of the other. Um, I was not very uh, coordinated in that window of time. And now coming back after a little bit of a break, I feel the same way. So if I'm a little uncoordinated, if that's even a word, up here uh, and kind of all over the place, now you know why. I'm doing my best to kind of catch up And get one foot in front of the other. Students in the room, I'm glad you're here. Jesus would be glad you were here as well. Um, Jesus loved everybody and he loved adults. uh, But if he was in this room today, he would work really, really, really hard to make sure that you knew how much he loved you. Um, And he would be very present. In fact, he would try to speak directly to you. I'm in no way the same caliber of teacher as Jesus. Not even close, but I'm going to do my best to speak directly to you in this room as well, not above you or around you. There's going to be moments you might get bored. I promise you that's the case, but there are hopefully going to be fun moments as well. But beyond all of that, I want you to know that we are so glad that you are here. And thank you so much for coming today or attending online. If you're anywhere with your family, or catching up throughout the week. There we go. Hi, sweetie. All right, so uh, like I said, our text is anything but easy today. This is how it starts. In verse 17, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings, your church gatherings, your church services, they do more harm than good. (laughs) Welcome back, Alex. (laughs) (laughs) Your church gatherings, your church meetings, they do more harm than good. My time off also gave me some time to reflect, time to think, time to ask questions. Sometimes in the busyness of life and raising multiple kids, days we just get through, right? We do our best to thrive, and some days we feel like we're just surviving. But a little bit of a break gave me a moment to pause, to think, to ask, why are we doing this? What good is this in the first place? Why does this matter? Why do we take time throughout our week to gather not just on Sunday mornings, but why do we gather as a community of faith in the middle of the week or for a cup of coffee with a friend? Like, why do we do this? Is it making a difference in my life and the world around me? Or is it doing more harm than good? These are the questions that I was pondering. Now, before you think I have like an early midlife crisis, I don't. This is normal for me. I am a curious person. I love asking questions. Students in the room, please be curious. You're told a lot what to think and how to act and what to do. And certainly as a parent myself, I know that's part of it. But hear hear me when I say this. Please ask good questions and ask them about your faith as well. If the Bible is any indicator, God is okay with you asking really confusing and hard questions. But please also don't settle for easy answers. Please continue to journey through those questions. I learned this um, early on in my journey of following Jesus. About a decade ago, uh, I painted a canvas, and it's all white, and it just has one word on it, and it says, learn. And I've kind of moved it around from room to room as, as, you know, the decade has gone on, but it currently sits in my office, and it sits right next to where I study. And the reason why I have it there is not just to be like, hey, I want to learn a lot. I want to put as much information in my head as I humanly can, it's about an attitude. It's about a posture that I move through the day. I'll tell you a temptation of somebody who stands on a stage or puts a microphone in front of their mouth or is pod, whatever they are, um, a temptation is to believe that I'm the teacher, an expert, I can stand up and, and share things that you don't know, and, and here's the temptation that has to be met with humility. Because I am not a teacher and I am not an expert. I am first and foremost a learner. I am somebody who must move through my days with curiosity but a desire to learn. And I encourage you to do the same. But here's something that I have learned in almost 14 years of pastoral ministry. I have sat down with countless people who have given up on church and who have given up on Jesus. And the common thread in 90% of those conversations is the same. It's not because of Jesus that they walked away from their faith, it's because of the church. Some of you might be in the room or watching online right now and you're on your very last straw but you're hanging in there. This message might be for you today. But it's for all of us in the same sense that if that is the case, if we have many people walking away from the faith and yes it's not a scientific study it's just my experience but 90% of the time it's root comes from the church. We have something to learn today too. Now when i say that the root of the, it's it's because this is supposed to be a community that is different. This is supposed to be a people that is different and when you run into the same things you run into in the world in here and it's not talked about it's not spoken it's not led and guided out of why keep going? Why keep participating? Why keep being a part of it? And so, so much of a crisis of faith has not to do with Jesus and their questions and doubts. It has to do with the church. Now, this may grab the headlines. It may be, you know, on your Apple News when it pops up on your phone. Sorry, Android people. But it might be uh, right on the front page of Yahoo or Fox News or CNN when the next megachurch pastor falls or the next Christian thing seems to be eroding in our society. But this is not a new phenomenon. This happened in Paul's world 2,000 years ago. And it happens in ours today. What we're going to read is a person, Paul, who deeply loves these people, challenge them. He's going to challenge them to turn that phrase upside down. To move away from the church doing more harm than good into the world, and instead to move the church towards doing more good than harm. So that's what we're gonna journey through, and the way he does it is pretty brilliant. He looks at the gathering, but it's not just the church service, the gathering. It's what it represents to the world around them. And it's not just when we get together here. It's when we get together in the coffee shop or the restaurant or in our homes. But it's not just there. It's also our hearts when we're alone, when we're by ourselves. See, the goal of this message for Paul is not just to instruct us how to have good rituals of a religious service. It's bigger than that. His vision is far-reaching. His vision is to change every facet of our lives around Jesus, and then that that would be represented when we gather together. So that's where he goes, that's where he starts, and that's where he's going. How do we move from more harm than good to more good than harm? Now, in order to kind of understand more of what Paul is getting at, we got to kind of think about two primary things. First, the church is not a building. You don't go to a church. You don't arrive at the church. You don't sit at the church. You are the church. The church is a people. Paul, in the uh, letter to the Philippian church, he picks up on a metaphor. And his metaphor is this that you, Christian, are a citizen of heaven. Now, this would have perked the ears up to the church in Philippi because they would have known what he was referring to because Philippi was a colony of Rome. And what that meant is the people who lived in the city of Philippi were basically Rome away from Rome. They followed under the rule and reign of Caesar, under the laws and customs of Rome, but in a different place. So when Paul says that you are a citizen of heaven, what he is saying is that you are a citizen of heaven Your kingdom is heaven. Your king is Jesus, not Rome. Your king is not Caesar. It's the Lord of all. He is telling them that although they live in a place, they are a people of a different kind. So when the church gathers, it's like a citizen town hall meeting, right? But of a different and faraway place. This is important for us to understand, because right now, you and I are citizens of heaven. Not America, not Mexico or Canada, not an Eastern European country. No, our citizenship is in heaven. And yet, we are a people in a place. We live in where? Beaverton or not Beaverton. Some of you are like in Hillsborough, or some of you are in Tigard, or Tualatin, or some of you are watching from the other side of the planet. Hi, by the way, we're glad you're here. The complexity of being a citizen of a faraway place, a citizen of heaven, and yet living in time and space right now is what Paul is dealing with, and it's what we have to deal with too. Now, in the midst of all of this, there's one other thing I want you to understand. Paul has faced all sorts of trouble, all kinds of trouble for his stance in the world, for his belief in Jesus, the resurrected Messiah, come to rescue and save the world and inaugurate his new kingdom. He has been beaten. He has been stoned. He has been left for dead. He's been shipwrecked multiple times. He's been stranded at sea. He goes through this laundry list of things that have happened to him. He has gone through it. Hear me on this. And yet... There is no one and nothing that causes him to spiral into a mental health health crisis more than the church in Corinth. Because there is something unique happening here in the church in Corinth that is far worse than any trouble that he could have faced anywhere else. I'll tell you as a pastor uh, myself, some of the worst wounds that have come in my life have come from the church. It's the last place it's supposed to come from, which is why it hurts the most. Some of you here in the room know what that feels like. In fact, I would venture, I would actually argue that any of you who have committed any point in time to the church in your lifetime, if you've been following Jesus for any period of time, you've been hurt at some point. And that wounding is painful. Painful. Now, Paul probably faced the same temptation that I faced many times, which is the temptation to disengage, to just be like, I'm out, right? I daydream about this often. I think about a plot of land in the middle of nowhere, living off the land, turning off all technology, don't have to hear about anything happening in the world. Does anyone ever experience that like me? a temptation maybe to just run away from it all, to disengage. Or you hear all these critiques about the church and what they are and what they're not. and Sometimes there's a temptation also to want to just disengage from the church as a whole as well. My life would be a lot easier and maybe yours would too. But then I run into Jesus <laughs> who saw the mess in the world and he engaged to the point of his own death. And then I read about Paul. His life would be so much better if he just didn't have to put up with the church in Corinth, if he could just walk away from it all and just disengage. And yet, he doesn't. He wades into the mess with hopes that this challenge, this critique, would lead them to something better, more life. And that's a challenge for me and it's a challenge for you today too. I know what it feels like. I'm telling you, I have been there. The thought of disengaging from it all sounds so nice. And yet the invitation of Jesus is that life is found from engaging with it, even if that costs you something significant. And so here we are as a church, engaging. You showed up today. And here we are as a church in our community, engaging. Engaging. And that is the temptation today for us to put aside, sorry, the temptation is for us to put aside the desire to disengage, the calling for us is to re-engage. So this is what's going on in the back of Paul's mind. Verse 18, Paul says this, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval now for the first 10 chapters of the book in Cor- of the letter to the Church in Corinth, Paul has established already that unity is very important. Division in the church is bad. Now we don't have to get you know overly bogged down into the details, but that is in essence what Paul is saying here. Now when he talks about there being differences and that there needs to be differences among you, what I want to, you to understand is that Paul is trying to make the best out of a bad situation. So division is never good in the church. It's never the ideal that we would be divided. But Paul is saying that the division has kind of given us an opportunity to see what following Jesus looks like and what it doesn't look like. But Paul is now not going to say that we should be divided and we should pursue that. He would rather that be gone in and of itself entirely because he desires unity. Now, unity is different than uniformity. Uniformity means everybody looks the same, acts the same, and is the same. And the construction of Paul's argument as it continues is the antithesis of that. He's not interested in us all being the same. He's interested in us being united. Those are two very different things. That's because there's a different set of values around Jesus than that in the world. And this is what I mean. We talk about unity in our world today. But typically, the unity we talk about in our world today is about a unity united around a common enemy. That's typically what we talk about. In my lifetime, I remember 9-11. Shortly thereafter, it felt like our world, our culture, our country was united around a common threat. But how long did that last? Not very long. Let's fast forward time over the last few years. Do you remember the beginning of COVID? We're all in it together. And then how long did that last? It's now their fault or it's their fault. The reason why we're in this is because of them. And if we got out of it, it would be because of them. See, we have this propensity in our culture, and it's not just today, it's been going on for a long time, to try to discover unity because of what we share in common, which is typically an enemy. We think we can only unite if we have a common enemy, but the gospel invites us into an entire different way of thinking. And I would argue it's a way that the world needs us to think about. It's unity through love and the love of Jesus. Listen, in this room right now, I know many of you, right? And I know that you don't all agree on masks. You don't all agree on vaccines. You don't all agree on Afghanistan. And yet here we are together. See that's what the world needs to see is a place where people can disagree and be in unity. A place where people can be different across socioeconomic boundaries and ethnicities and culture and yet we love one another. Thank you. But see the problem with the church in Corinth is that that wasn't happening. The differences were dividing factors in their community. They were not things that they needed to contend for or work through. They were things that further separated them. And so Paul is interested in fixing that problem. The question is, why is that so important to him? Well, I'll answer it in a minute. Paul in verse 20 begins to answer that himself. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For when you were eating... Some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and the other gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this manner. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat the bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. At the end of my message, in a few minutes, we're gonna take communion together. But Paul is addressing this pretty significant issue in the church, when the church was getting together in Corinth, this is what was happening. There was wealthy people and people that had need. Some things are same true today. But imagine this, that in the room, we only allowed you to walk through these doors if you were of a certain socioeconomic status, if you made a certain amount of money. And then we put a big feast together for all the wealthy people in the community of faith. Everyone out in the hallway got nothing. They weren't allowed to come in. They could maybe catch it on the screens and they weren't allowed to have food. But the greatest need was there, but they were the ones being ignored. This is what was happening in the church. This is why Paul says you are doing more harm than good. They're an exclusive group of people and the gospel is anything but an exclusive message. You know, the church today, and not necessarily us, but yes, we're a part of this broader thing called the church. We have issues. One of our problems, at least in our current context, is our obsession with power. And I don't mean like Holy Spirit, Pentecostal kind of power. I mean this idea that if we somehow wielded more power in the world, we could force good to happen. We could force the change that we wanted to happen if we had the right person in the right position of power. And we think like that, and we strategize like that. But the problem is, is that's not the way Jesus operated. Do I have any Lord of the Rings fans out there? Any fellow nerds in the room? All right. Lane, I see you. I know you can hang. In Lord of the Rings, there's this relic, this thing called the Ring of Power. And it's forged and given to the dark Lord of the world. A giant war breaks out, the ring falls off Sauron's hand, and there's an opportunity to end evil once and for all by casting the ring into the fire. But there's a king, a man, who believes he can wield the dark power for good. So he takes the ring with him. But the problem is, is you can't. The problem is that dark power consumes him, and the rest of the story is about how that darkness cannot be used for good, it must be destroyed, it cannot be used. Our problem, the church in America's problem, is that we still think we can wield the ring of power for good, and we can't. If that would have been the way Jesus wanted us to operate, he would have shown up as Caesar in Rome, and he would have conquered the world through his might and power, but he doesn't. He shows up in some backwater corner of Galilee, poor in weird circumstances, at one point a refugee running for his life, and somehow he turns the whole world upside down forever, We have to remember that the power of Jesus is so different than the power the world offers. And if we continue to try to wield it, we will have no results. He conquered death by dying for us, not by wielding the sword. So we have to adopt that same mindset here. While Paul's issues seem far off and thousands of years ago, they are the same issues we face today. Can you see it? Their power dynamics were backwards and upside down. They were valuing the wrong things, money and power and wisdom in a certain way. And they were devaluing the people that Jesus would have been most interested in. Same critique there should challenge us today. Now, Paul's going to reconstruct what the gathering of believers should look like. Because right? he's not just going to tear something down and deconstruct it. He's going to rebuild it and say, this is what it should look like. And he does it in such a brilliant and amazingly nerdish kind of way. Right? He references four ancient historical constructs. These were four things that everyone in Corinth would have known about and that the church would have even participated in maybe before coming to faith in Jesus. And what he's going to do is this complicated thing of highlighting aspects of our culture that have good in them or point towards something better while at the same time radically redefining what those things are and saying this is what the church should be. Here are the four things. One is called Saturnalia, and it was a yearly celebration in the culture where if you had means of wealth, you would go out into the streets, you would find somebody who had no means, and you would invite them into your home for a banquet, and you would treat them as equal. It was this once-a-year celebration of social leveling all over the city. Now they only did it once a year, right? But it gave them a chance to kind of pat themselves on the back and say, I gave to a good cause, I did something good. They may walk across that same person begging on a street corner the other 364 days of the year, but for one day, they treated them as an equal. In a way, what Paul is getting at is that the community of faith should be like Saturnalia, only not for one day out of a year. 365 days a year, seven days a week. There should be a social leveling where your money, your power, your access to the world does not make you better than anybody else. That's what the gathering of Jesus' followers in the world should look like. He kind of hints at another thing, associations. Think of like ancient unions without all the drama, right? Back in those times, in, in some ways, our world isn't that much different. If you wanted an opportunity to kind of move through life and have an opportunity to go to school or to, you know, to take over a family business, if you weren't born into the right socioeconomic status, then you would never get that opportunity. An association was an opportunity for you to belong. There was initiatory rites, and there were things you needed to do, and you would bring in a skill set to this association. But once you did, you had this common life with a group of people who thought like you, who worked like you, and who helped support you and give you honor and dignity and respect in the world. And what Paul is saying is that the church is kind of like that. Only your initiation is baptism. And it's not about what you bring to the table and your gifts, and your abilities, and your talents. It's about what Jesus did at the table. And that's what makes you belong. Again, it's a leveling thing. And then there were these two other ideas, a symposium and a convivium. I don't know if I pronounced those right, but whatever symposiums were teaching venues. They were spaces where you would gather together and you would bring a teacher and he would tell you about the philosophy of the world and sometimes these things would get mixed with something called the convivium where basically the party got a little wild. You'd hear about Plato's philosophy and you'd drink a lot. And that was a convivium. So Paul takes these two ideas again where we're supposed to be a place where we gather, where we learn, but not to further climb up some hierarchical ladder to say, look how much I know. Paul says earlier, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, right? It's not about how much you know to elevate yourself. It's about how much you know to give away, to serve, and to help elevate someone else. And then finally, the ultimate act is instead of pouring out a drink to the gods and drinking the rest yourself, it's about receiving the cup of Jesus, These are four cultural constructs Paul is going to use in a brilliant way to unpack what the church should look like. Now, why did I bring all of that up? It's like, great, Alex, thanks for telling me about four ancient practices that I'm going to forget in five minutes. That's not helpful. I'm not trying to flex some intellectual muscle or tell you how much of a Bible nerd I am, but I am trying to show you something. Paul is a translator of culture, and I would argue we need to be as well. I'm going to give you an example of what that looks like. Throw out Disney movies. Any, name any Disney movie for me, and I'm going to translate it for you. Cinderella. Oh, man, Cinderella. I'm still working on Cinderella. Can, give me another one. I heard Moana. I heard Frozen. Avenger. Lion King. Lion King Pin- Pinocchio. I wish I, I, I could figure out Pinocchio for sure. Okay, I'm going to pick one. Uh, let's go Frozen. We all know Frozen. I did Frozen, the other two services. I do Beauty and the Beast a lot, but here's my point. I think every story in our culture is pointing towards a greater story. Now, my daughter, Isla, she's going on four. Right before bed, she always says, "I want tell me a story, Dad, tell me a story. And so I'll, you know, Pastor Pastor Al, I'll show up and be like, well, there was this King David. She's like, no, I don't want a Bible story. (laughs) I don't want that. Tell me Beauty and the Beast, tell me Moana, tell me, you know, and so, I tell her these stories because that's what she's craving. That's what she wants. But I want to translate those stories for her and help her see Jesus. So let me tell you Frozen. Frozen is a story about a frozen heart. That's in essence how the movie starts. Beware the frozen heart. There's a reason I'm not on the worship team. But that's how it starts. It's a song. And it's a story about two sisters that go on this journey, one of which has power. She has these magicalized powers, but she's terrified of them, and the more she's afraid of using her powers, the worse they get. And then you have another sister who loves her sister unconditionally, even though Anna's a bit of a pain, or Elsa's a bit of a pain. They're both a pain. Whatever. You get my point. They go on this long journey. Elsa begins to discover that the only way she can wield her power for good is through love and not fear. Sorry, Elsa. Anna is trying to connect with her sister over and over again, but she somehow gets a frozen heart. Long story. What thaws the frozen heart? Anyone know the movie? An act of true love. The thought is it's going to be a prince's kiss, right? But it's not, that doesn't work. No, instead it's an act of self-sacrificial love. Anna throws herself in front of the sword to save her sister, and she dies. Only then to be resurrected when they discover that the most powerful act of love that thaws a frozen heart is an act of self-sacrificial love. Do you see what I just did there? I just did the gospel in Frozen, and I've got Moana, I've got Toy Story down, I've got a few of them down, okay? I would try. Maybe next time. So, my point is this, is that I'm translating the gospel to my daughters because that's the way they want to hear it. And it's helping them understand that there is nothing more powerful in the world than love and a love that lays their life down for you. And then I pray for her that she would understand the love of Jesus, that she would know it and that she could share it. I think our culture builds all of these protests and movements and all of these things because they're craving the gospel, but they don't know how to find language for it. And sometimes the church just kind of steps back and says, keep that away from me. It's dangerous. It's going to hurt us and infect us or affect us in some negative way. And instead of saying, I see that, and it's pointing towards Jesus. And if only we could develop the same kind of fluency that Paul has here, where he is able to translate the gospel in cultural terms for them, he's leading them someplace they could not go if he did not have the ability to do it. So if you ever want to hear about, you know, the gospel in Star Wars, I got you, all right? No, but seriously, may we be a people like that. So Paul's going to construct that, say this is what the community of faith should look like, and then he's going to end it in kind of a weird way. (laughs) Verse 27, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep or died. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Judgment, condemnation, discipline, unworthy, these are strong terms, big words. And again, if we don't read it through someone who deeply loves and is committed to this church, we might think Paul's a jerk, but he's not. Now, first off, Paul talks about this idea that some people, because of the way they're behaving, are sick, weak, or dying. Please don't use this verse to explain someone's suffering. Please don't misuse this verse in that way. You know, one simple translation could be that things like gluttony and drunkenness lead to disease that can kill you, and make you sick, and make you weak. That's a simple translation, and certainly that's probably true here. We think Paul maybe had some prophetic insight beyond that as well. But one thing we do know is that Paul understood that you cannot bifurcate or separate out your physicality and your spirituality. That what you do with your body affects your spirit and vice versa. That something happens in this space not just in a physical sense but in a deeply spiritual one as well. So why is Paul concerned then about the gathering? He's concerned because Surely when we gather here, in a physical sense, there's something in this for you. You're going to feel the conviction of the Spirit. Maybe you'll feel something when you walk into the room, or you'll get to see people that you connect with. There's something that happens here. But there's more than that. When a community of faith can come together in all of our differences, in all of our, you know, all of our different opinions about ideas and our statuses in the world and all of that show genuine love for one another. You know what that is? That is a sign of hope to the world that has very little right now. You know what else that is? In a spiritual sense, that is a declaration to the dark powers that seem to be running rampant all over the world right now that their time is done because they have no power over this group of people can you just see how powerful that can be and that should be and why Paul is so interested in contending for it in his community? Now, on an individual level, we're supposed to take these things and process them. We're supposed to let them churn inside of our own hearts because really, our hearts are where things become derailed. Our hearts are where things are kind of off. But if you're hearing what I'm saying and you're receiving it with condemnation or guilt, fear, I wanna end by just simply reading a passage of scripture over you, one that many of you will know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that anyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is a message that is encapsulated in the table and it should be at the center of all of our lives. If you're hearing what I'm saying, and you're like, yeah, in my heart and in my mind, I have thought myself better then. I have maybe done what they did in Saturnalia. I've given a little bit here. I've given a little bit there, but I've never allowed my heart to get to that place where I see the people that are different around me as equals. Hear the word of God here. He did not come into the world. He did not share the gospel with you to condemn you, but to save you, to invite you into a life that is truly life. Now, we're going to end our time together by taking communion together because here in the passage, Paul says that this is what the center of our gathering should be. So if you have your communion elements, you can going to take this thing off here. Do this in remembrance of me. That's what Jesus said. When Jesus started this meal, he did it on the night that he was betrayed. Think about that for a second. His disciples, the people that followed him, walked with him, knew him. He knew they were all going to betray him, walk away, abandon him. And yet he tells them this bread, it's like my body, that's been broken for you. Jesus broke. He was broken so that you and I could be made whole. This morning, I want you to think about something in your life that is broken. A hope, a dream, a medical diagnosis. I want you to think about how you felt walking into this space today. Today, Maybe you were filled with joy or maybe you were filled with with dread. We remember that Jesus is making us whole because as we sang earlier, when we turn our gaze away from Jesus, things begin to fall apart. So it's a moment like this where we turn our eyes back to Jesus. And I want you to take that broken part of your life as we take the bread, I want you to offer it to Jesus and allow him to make you whole this morning. Would you take the bread with me? We're going to take the cup together as well. Do me a favor and turn it right side up before you take the thing off. Jesus did pour out his blood for us. I don't think he intended it to be poured out on my white shirt. I'm not meaning to be flipping in this moment. This is a real moment. When we hold the cup and we look at what it's supposed to represent, this is the blood of the new covenant of Jesus. We're told to take this in remembrance of him. If you don't feel worthy, lovable, good enough, I want you to just take a moment and look at this. Because what it represents is a God who sees you as worthy, as lovable. A God who is willing to die for you so that you could be made whole. So that you could then go into the world and bring hope and peace and love to those around you. So if this morning, you don't feel like you are worthy, welcome to the family, because it's Jesus's blood that makes us that. So we drink this in remembrance today of a God who gave himself for us so that we could have life. Would you drink the cup with me? It's kind of become a tradition around here now to pray a benediction over you as we leave. So if you would, stand with me. Um, if you're open to receiving, uh, benediction is just a prayer of blessing. My daughter Scarlett and I prayed over you earlier, same thing. But in kind of to wrap this time up together, I'd like to pray over you. May you be a people that is a sign of hope to a world that is hopeless. May you be a people that translates the gospel to a culture that is craving to know Jesus. May you be a people that live as citizens of a kingdom of heaven in a very broken earth. And may you be a people as we gather here or out there, We're in our lives as individuals that do more good in this world than harm. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. (laughs) Well, hey, thanks for bearing with me this weekend. Sure, love you guys so much. I'm so thankful to be a part of this group of people, this amazing community of faith. Hey, uh, we have a scavenger hunt for our kids at our amazing B for the City pop-up shop in the lobby please go stop by there. If you uh, had a kid choose you over the last few weekends through Chosen and you haven't picked up your envelope yet, they're in the info desk in the lobby as well. Please grab these on your way out, throw them in the garbage for me. That'd be amazing. Sure love you guys. We'll see you soon. Have a great Labor Day weekend.